Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. This was a sad week and a nostalgic week for many Americans watching the ceremonies celebrating the life of President George H.W. Bush. And Steve, I don't know how you felt about it, but H.W. Bush was the first president as a child that I really kind of got to know of and became interested in politics because of. I remember during the 92 campaign, my dad and my granddad were talking politics all the time, and they were constantly comparing H.W.'s character to that of Bill Clinton. And so this was kind of my political awakening in the time frame in which I first fell in love with politics because of a man like H.W. Bush at the top of the food chain who conducted himself in such a way that really made you proud. Well, I think I really share your feelings of nostalgia and this real sense of, of loss this week, not just with the passing of an American statesman and somebody who I think is a titanic figure in the uh, last hours of the 20th century, somebody who's going to be remembered very, very well by history, somebody who I think is going to be regarded by historians as the greatest one-term president in the history of the country, somebody who exercised the combinations of wisdom and restraint and goodness that the American people have expected, I think, from the President of the United States over the over the long arc of our history. He was, in addition to being the last of the World War II generation to be President of the United States, this occasion marks the passing of the youngest combat pilot in the Pacific theater of war uh, at 94 years of age. And when we think about that generation that Tom Brokaw so aptly named the greatest generation, we're losing them. The The last of them uh, are passing at the end of long human lifespans. And the qualities of that generation that was formed in the Depression, that survived the Second World War and fought in it, and built the prosperity that we fundamentally enjoy today, that built the world order, uh, which to some degree we see crumbling, uh, their, their loss is, is not a good thing for the country. And I, and I think there is this sense in the country watching all of this, an acute understanding uh, of what we're losing as we lose the last of that generation. Uh, we're not better for it. And Steve, you noted that George H.W. Bush was the last of the Tom Brokaw named greatest generation. Eight U.S. presidents served in the military during World War II. That's more than any other war, even in the Civil War, only produced six presidents. Clearly, this is a generation that had the most indelible mark on America and the world. Talk a little bit about that generational change in the sense of we're seeing it. Obviously, a lot of these uh, leaders left the stage years ago, but we're we're seeing the destruction of that order that they set up. Talk for a minute about that, because I think that is a lot of where we get our nostalgia. I know I was talking to my mother last night, and she was was very nostalgic 
for what was being done to the legacy of that generation. I've always loved the line from President Bush's convention speech in 1988 in New Orleans, where he said, I'm a quiet man. I hear the quiet others don't. And we think about these virtues, we think about male character and the iconic American hero. And we think today in our country and our politics about the idea of strength and toughness. And we are so easily confused by these words, and they've become so warped that we confuse toughness with meanness, that we confuse strength with cruelty. And here was a tough guy, um, a iconically tough guy, a, an American hero in the truest sense. Uh, 18 years old, he enlists in the Navy. By 19, he's flying off an aircraft carrier the first of his 58 combat missions. Uh, by 20 years old, he's been shot down, uh, has suffered through the tragedy of losing uh, his backseater, fished out of the Pacific Ocean by a submarine, and like all of that generation, came home from the war and didn't talk about it. He had served for just over a 1,000 days, flying 58 missions, making 126 carrier landings and recording 1,228 hours of flight time. Bush was decorated with gold wings, the Distinguished Flying Cross, an air medal with gold stars, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with three battle stars, the World War II Victory Medal, the American Campaign Medal, and the Selective Service Medal. That is such impressive achievement. And yet, years later, what H.W. took away from that was how lucky he had been to survive. I'll always wonder why me? Why was I spared? And you didn't hear H.W. wasn't constantly patting himself on the back for his service. He really went forward channeling his experience into future service, which I think is a very important point about this generation of World War II veterans, how they were able to take the lessons that they had learned and channel it into the greater good once they got home. Steve, you and I both grew up at the height of the Cold War in the 70s and the 80s. Explain to people how dangerous a world George H.W. Bush inhabited at the end of the Cold War. We give Ronald Reagan, rightly so, a lot of credit for being the commander-in-chief that did a lot to end the Cold War, to beat um, the Soviet Empire. But as that Soviet empire was crumbling and that world order was crumbling, that was a very dangerous place. And I think, Steve, you're talking about toughness versus meanness and resolve versus being loud. The point was made by Prime Minister Mulroney in his eulogy of President Bush this week that when every single world leader that you could think to name dealt with the president of the United States, the American commander in chief, when his name was George Herbert Walker Bush, they saw a figure that they respected, that they trusted, that they knew was steely and resolved and wise and restrained. And when you look at the fall of the Berlin Wall, George Herbert Walker Bush didn't celebrate by humiliating the Soviet Union and the Russian people. His response was one of restraint. 
He was a leader in the diplomacy that led to a reunified Germany, which was by no means an uncontroversial issue and was something that was opposed by many of our Western allies and, of course, was the right thing to do. When we, when we look at him as a wartime commander-in-chief and the two times that he deployed into harm's way the American military, he was the most peerless wartime commander since FDR. His wisdom and his restraint in the first Gulf War, I think, now stand as legend. Um, this was an era when you had somebody like George Herbert Walker Bush. He was so consummately prepared for this office, vice president for eight years, U.N. ambassador, envoy to China, director of the CIA, member of Congress. He was seasoned. He was hardened, hardened by his own personal experiences in war, but deeply understood the moment in time and what was called on. By, for by the American president, how to act in a very dangerous world. And when, when we look back now with enough time to really weigh these events through a historical perspective, uh, especially now as we're at another hinge in history, uh, we're, we're able to evaluate and say, wow, this, this president did a fantastic job when it came to the security of the United States and the, uh, the stewardship of the liberal global order, which was led by the United States from Harry Truman through this president that we have now. And my two favorite presidents are President Dwight Eisenhower and President H.W. Bush. And they both shared the commonality of being kind of boring, being considered <laughs> boring, a little bit fuddy-duddy, not – Glamorous and exciting and very pragmatic and thoughtful. And those traits really led to incredible foreign policy gains for H.W. Bush. You look at the scope of what he was able to do and how, of course, American voters never reward great foreign policy achievement. But they really tended to diplomacy around the world constantly. And when they needed allies, when they needed a coalition to go against Saddam Hussein for invading Kuwait, he was able to assemble that coalition pretty easily because he had the respect of his international peers. And we saw that on display and we were reminded of it again this week from uh, from the Canadian prime minister. Another quality that Ike and George H.W. shared was competence. Those were people that you knew could get the job done. Obviously, um, we don't need to talk about General Eisenhower's ability to get a job done. Well, George H.W. Bush in the civilian and diplomatic roles was equally competent. And Steve, you know, John Meacham talks, I remember in the Roosevelt's when he was talking about the relationship between Winston Churchill and FDR, and he talked about how we are blessed at times to have the exact right people at the exact right times. Was George H.W. Bush the exact right person for that post-Cold War moment, that, that dissolution of the Soviet Union, just in terms of temperament, in terms of his ability to get things done? And competence is a word, I think, that just runs through every bit of his career. The comparisons between Winston Churchill and George Herbert Walker Bush are completely appropriate because in the same way that Churchill lost the election after he won the Second World War is that after George Herbert Walker Bush, 
as vice president in the Reagan administration and then president in his own right, stewarding the end of the Cold War, that this was a moment in time that we look back that some historians had said this was the end of history. And so the American people said, we don't need to have the accomplished diplomat. We don't need to have the global statesman. Um, the job is done. The mission has been completed. Now, we know, in fact, that history did not stop, that this was a unique moment, this moment of Pax Americana. But George Herbert Walker Bush, and I think you hit the nail on the head, was, was profoundly competent in everything that he did, from being the youngest combat pilot in the Pacific theater of the war to being so successful in the oil business, to being CIA director for only a year, but being remembered by every subsequent director as the person who set the gold standard there, the person who set the gold standard for the modern vice presidency, and the person who set the gold standard as a diplomat, as a statesman on the world stage, and the accomplishments of that era, of that period of time when there was so much turbulence in the world are profound. And it was great to see this week that he get his due uh, as truly being, though a president who was defeated for re-election doesn't change and mitigate the fact that when you look at the domestic policy accomplishments and the national security and foreign policy accomplishments, that this was a great president. I really respected just what a class act of a send-off the week's ceremonies were. You could have made a political statement. The Bush family chose precisely to go in the opposite direction and by reminding the nation and the world of President George H.W. Bush's fundamental decency made us remember how hungry we are for that kind of decency again in public life. And I think that it was a very important example to showcase the good about H.W. service and to not focus on a political jab that might feel good in the moment, but ultimately only tears us further apart. And so I think that the Bush family this week set a very important example for how we can conduct ourselves in this era of so much division. It was a beautiful ceremony, series of ceremonies remembering this life. But what we remembered in the life of George Herbert Walker Bush are not his accomplishments, not that he dealt decisively with the problem of acid rain or that he passed uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act or even that he was a brilliant statesman at the hour of collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall. What we celebrated this week is the persistence of the man's character that for 94 years on earth, that nearly the span of a century, three quarters the length of the American century, the first two decades of the 21st century, that when you think about his political career, which began in 1966 as election to the Congress and ends with his defeat for the presidency, that 26-year period is matched by the amount of time he spent as a former president of the United States. 
And during that period of service, those 52 years, the country fell in love with this man. And they fell in love with him because of the qualities of character that we saw in display. We saw graciousness in victory, magnanimity in defeat. We saw somebody with the capacity to forge friendships, including and even with the man who defeated him for president, a job that he dearly loved and certainly wanted to complete another four years of. We see somebody who raised hundreds of millions of dollars for charitable causes, who spent so much of his life in the service to the country. And when we think about qualities of his character, courage, humility, love, wisdom, restraint, compassion, all of these qualities are precisely the qualities that any nation needs to have to be a great nation, to move forward, to grow, to prosper, to to secure the blessings of prosperity and liberty for future generations. Absent these qualities of character, no nation can long survive. And so what we celebrated this last week were these qualities of character, which seem so utterly distant and far away from the office of president of the United States, but so profoundly missing from our politics and our political leadership, though I think they can be found everywhere you look out across the country. But that is what we celebrated. And when you think about the last mile where the president's casket is taken to the place of internment at the presidential library, that that final journey Uh, the presidential flag being carried by the Navy sailor, uh, the honor guard carrying the casket, his son, the former president, and all of his kids following behind him. What a life's journey this was, and what an example for everybody. And I think every parent in the country who had the occasion to watch any part of this with their kids had the opportunity to look at their kids in a sea of uh, cruelty and meanness and vileness in our culture to at long last be able to say this, this, him, be like him. This is someone worthy of admiration. This is a hero. This is a great man. This is a great person. Emulate this. Strive and look up to his example. And and I think that millions of Americans had that response this week to watching this funeral and the celebration of a truly great American life. Steve, you mentioned courage as obviously one of George H.W. Bush's signature qualities. And I remember watching about five years ago, I think it was 2014, when he received the Profile and Courage Award from another presidential library, the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library. His no new taxes, when he broke that, They passed a budget bill that was really the last great and comprehensive budget bill that this country seen. And he had political courage and he wasn't afraid. And and, uh, President uh, George Bush, uh, 43, in his book, when he talked about how he voted for the Fair Housing Act in 1968, his political courage, even though his district um, was 30 to 1, according to his letters against it. Talk a little bit about the courage. We, we, We all know the pledge, but talk about what he did and what it did for in terms of 
reducing the deficit in terms of policy, that he put that in front of any political consideration and, um, and knew it would be tough for him. Well, he broke a political promise because he was duty-bound to do it, that the fiscal condition of the country required him to make rational, responsible decisions. And as a conservative, as a former Republican, uh, I tend to believe that people in the United States are not undertaxed, but instead that they're overtaxed. But what, whatever your your view is on this, it, it's never been the case that in the conservative movement or the Republican Party that the party was reflexively anti-all taxes. Sometimes taxes have to be raised because the government's spending needs are such that there's not enough money and deficits and debt over the long term are bad for the economy, have the potential to hurt the people who need government the most. And so he was a responsible, fiscally conservative steward of the American economy. He understood that not only is it economically wrong, but it's morally wrong to beggar the next generation with this generation's debt. And so he made responsible decisions. He paid a political price for it, but he did what he thought was the right thing to do, which in this case was the right thing to do. And when you look at the out years of the balanced budgets of that era, they occurred in large measure because of this courageous decision that George Herbert Walker Bush made. And one of my favorite George H.W. Bush quotes in the aftermath of his 1964 Senate loss in Texas, talking about the rise of the John Birchers within the party. When the word moderation becomes a dirty word, we have some soul searching to do. And I think we're very much at a point like that now, too, within the conduct of the Republican Party and the intolerance of any kind of compromise whatsoever. You have just this month, the Senate Majority Leader won't even let the criminal justice bill go to the floor, even though there is strong bipartisan support for it. We have an obstructionist within our own party to getting anything done. And so I think in the aftermath of this death, one thing that I hope those in public life who are concerned about the stagnation within government. I hope that they look to George H.W. Bush's example, his example of how to get things actually done. He had a remarkable string of accomplishments on the domestic policy front, and he did them in a bipartisan fashion. He was able to work with the opposition party to move the country forward. And his policies were pragmatic, they were conservative, but they were moderate. They dealt with the challenges of the time. I mean, it may seem ridiculous to think for somebody who's a bit younger, Elise, you know, that's college age, that there was a time until George Herbert Walker Bush became president that public spaces didn't need to accommodate people who were disabled, um, that it wasn't mandatory that there be a wheelchair ramp or that there be an elevator. And just that accomplishment alone would be enough to certify him as an accomplished president in domestic policy. But when you look at his environmental achievements, the Clean Air Act, he represents a Republican Party that's on the edge of extinction, if not completely extinct. But 
when you look at you look at his governing legacy, it's defined by pragmatism, moderation, and and common sense. And it's a long ways from anything uh, that you would see coming out from a policy perspective of the Republican majority or the former Republican majority in this last Congress. There's such a strong contrast in terms of the team that George H.W. Bush assembled to help execute his foreign and domestic policy to the current day incarnation of literally talking heads occupying some of the most powerful roles in the world. You had men like Colin Powell, Brent Scrocroft, you had James Baker, you had so many figureheads who were just giants in terms of their stature and reputation and their ability to execute H.W.'s vision. No, absolutely, Elise. I think that the team that he put around him and, again, this this word that I think we're going to keep talking a lot about, competence, um, their ability and all of these things. And Steve's right. There are people who don't know what the world was like before the Americans with Disabilities Act. They don't know um, anything from that. And that was something that George H.W. Bush did. And he did it with bipartisan support, and he was able to get that bill through. And I think it's it's a towering achievement, but it's also it was also world changing, like a lot of things that he that he did. Steve, one of the things I found interesting was that when President Bush forty three went through the list of people that George H W Bush had adopted um, as his children, one of them was Arnold Schwarzenegger, somebody who you worked with. Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Um, as, as much as you can in, in terms of uh, what, what they saw in each other. Arnold Schwarzenegger loves George Herbert Walker Bush. He, he admired him. And you think about this from this perspective and these qualities of character. So you have Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's just a remarkable human being on 25 different levels. It was my privilege to get to work for, to run his campaign for governor, but to, to have been a friend of his for many years. And um, you think about somebody who has risen to the top of everything that he's done, from bodybuilding, business, politics, acting, um, the most recognizable movie star in the world, the biggest movie star, the biggest box office hero icon of that era, who was his hero? Who did he admire? Who was the person that he became friends with that possessed for real all the qualities of character and heroism and goodness that you see rendered on the movie screen? For Arnold Schwarzenegger, that person was George Herbert Walker Bush. He was a real-life action hero to Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was all of the things that movie stars pretend to be when they inhabit heroic roles on the screen. And so Arnold Schwarzenegger had the deepest respect, the deepest admiration uh, for President Bush 41, and and he loved him. Uh, And he admired him. And I think that whether it's Bill Clinton, whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, whether it's Brian Mulroney, that when you look at the people who came into contact, who had the privilege of meeting, whether it was for five minutes or to have known him for years, the love for George Herbert Walker Bush is based on these extraordinary qualities of character. And 
It used to be the case in the country from the time a kid was little, we would talk about character and we would talk about these qualities. And somewhere, somehow, we decided as a country that, well, these aren't so important when it comes to our political leaders. And what we're reminded of in this in this last week um, and what everybody saw in this man and, and what the celebration was about were these indistinguishable qualities of goodness that Sherman ascribed to Lincoln upon his death. He said, I've known all the great men of the world, but I've never known anyone who possessed the qualities of greatness and goodness like Abraham Lincoln. And in the way that Lincoln possessed those qualities, George Herbert Walker Bush possessed the qualities of greatness and goodness. And that's why even someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he looked for a hero, he looked to George Herbert Walker Bush. One of the commonalities between H.W. Bush and Eisenhower was that they lost a child at a very young age. They had significant wartime experience losing men that they loved, close friends. They had both felt and experienced great loss. And the loss of their children in particular was something that Eisenhower during um, you know, the height of the war would still be riding home to Mamie talking about how much he missed his son Icky and how it you know still felt like yesterday. And then the remembrances of President H.W. Bush and First Lady Barbara Bush's young daughter Robin and the empathy that it really brought out throughout their lives in public service, I think uh, is a testament to a deep human heart. There's no question and um, really get a sense of the pain of that loss in the life of President and Mrs. Bush in the post-presidency. It wasn't something that was talked a great deal about in the campaigns, but in his book of letters, in John Meacham's book, a lot more detail about the pain of that loss and the beautiful letter that he wrote where he talks about that in his mind's eye, that though he was in his 70s or 80s and his son was president of the United States, that he's always conceived that his number of children included Robin and that she was perpetually in his mind's eye three years old. And and I just, you know, it broke my heart reading uh, about it, you know, as somebody who's a father of two daughters and, you know, that's such a special age for, for a little girl in, in, the, in the eyes of their dad and the relationship. And, you know, it's such a beautiful part of his character. His personality is, is this capacity for love, his sentimentality. You know, he often joked, you know, that, you know, the older he got, the more, the more he cried. And I just think the American people love that about, about him. And I love that about the Bush family, too. The Bush family, they're criers, and I love that because they show that it's okay to wear your emotions on your sleeve. It's okay to show how much you love someone. And that's why, you know, my heart was just breaking while I watched the funeral this week and seeing 
how they were really wearing their loves on the sleeves because he was just such a giant within the family. And I think that the greatest judge of a person is the respect that they're held within their family. That's the greatest judge of a person's character and of a person's time on earth. And judging from how the Bush family reveres H.W. Bush, his was truly a life well lived. Yeah, it sure was. It's the life of an American legend. It truly is. Steve, any final thoughts on George H.W. Bush? A great American life has ended. And we've lost something with the loss of that life as a country. But we are so much better off as a country for the fact that that life was lived. And that George Herbert Walker Bush decided not to go to Wall Street but decided to serve his country. And, and, and what he achieved and what he contributed was simple. He passed on to the next generation a stronger, freer, more prosperous country and a more secure world. And he did it with kindness, with decency, with goodness. And his life is one worthy of the honor that it was received, that it was paid this week. Certainly, Steve, President Bush passed along an example for all Americans who want to look to the good in their fellow men and women and bring out the good in their fellow Americans. And I'm grateful that he was in public life and we had such a giant example of the compassion that is sorely needed in American society today. 100% at least. And let's let President George H.W. Bush have the final word this week. I take as my guide the hope of a saint. In crucial things, unity. In important things, diversity. In all things, generosity. America today is a proud, free nation decent and civil, a place we cannot help but love. We know in our hearts, not loudly and proudly, but as a simple fact, that this country has meaning beyond what we see and that our strength is a force for good. But have we changed as a nation, even in our time? Are we enthralled with material things, less appreciative of the nobility of work and sacrifice? My friends, we are not the sum of our possessions. They are not the measure of our lives. In our hearts, we know what matters. We cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home his neighborhood and town better than he found it. And what do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we're no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? No president, no government can teach us to remember what is best in what we are. 
But if the man you have chosen to lead this government can help make a difference, if he can celebrate the quieter, deeper successes that are made not of gold and silk but of better hearts and finer souls, if he can do these things, then he must. America is never wholly herself unless she is engaged in high moral principle. We as a people have such a purpose today. It is to make kinder the face of the nation and gentler the face of the world. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.